We, I'm in Louisville, um, okay. and we just got our first snow today. So, uh, you know, we got maybe a quarter of an inch, and schools are out. <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome to the first podcast for 2017. We closed that December with a record number of downloads. We were at 31,000 for the month. Uh, super excited about that. And that actually put us at an all-time downloads of reaching near 200,000. It's actually just incredible. So thank you everyone for your support and thank you for listening. It almost feels like we're just getting started and we've got lots of great guests and probably going to get some returning guests coming on as well. We're going to take the podcast, I think, in a probably a little bit different direction in 2017. We've looked at the data and see what people are really interested in hearing about. The types of guests and the content might be a little bit different than what we were used to, but it's still going to be entertaining as hell. Once again, thank you to everyone who supports the show. You know, if you haven't supported yet, please consider doing so. Visit patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Burden Pursuit to learn more about all the cool swag, such as t-shirts and koozies you get in return. Enjoy this week's episode. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Give 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Welcome back to the episode of the Burn Pursuit Podcast. So it's just Kenny here today, and it's uh, it's actually a snowy day here in Louisville. This is, uh, this is a week where it's our first snow, and we were kind of joking before we started recording that we just got our first quarter inch and all the schools are closed around here. It's the way that uh, people from the Northeast and everywhere else, they, they, they always laugh at us because Louisville just doesn't have the infrastructure to be able to take care of snow. But it is during the time of the year when, um, you know, the barrels are starting to do their, their contraction. They're starting to do that. Uh, all the things that you hear about when you go and you visit things on the bourbon trail. And so this is really how the magic is happening. Right. We have those those shifts in the weather. And this is how 
how the sausage is made, uh, I guess this is a good way to put it. So today on the show, we have a legendary author. We have Chuck Cowdery on the show. So today, uh, Chuck, welcome, first off. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, good. So before we jump into it, I, I think it's it's notable. We have to say that you know you are uh, one of the legends when it comes to being a bourbon author. You've written all kinds of books, such as Bourbon Straight, Bourbon Strange, um, and and I kind of want to give people an understanding of first a little bit about you. Uh, talk about the man before before bourbon and kind of how you got into it as well. Well, I uh, probably the the biggest thing was my moving to Louisville back in. Uh, the very snowy uh, year of 1978. I moved there in the in the um, late winter of 1978, and there were um, yeah, there was a foot of snow on the ground. That may be hard to believe, but that was a very very snowy uh, snowing winter in Louisville. And just I, I came there from uh, Ohio, and uh, really, you know, even that long ago, um, there were more distilleries. Uh, more companies. Uh, everybody was based in Louisville. I was in the advertising business, and the nature of small local ad agencies in those days was you had, you know, everybody had w- one local bank and one local bakery. And as things started to get more national, that that was less and less of the case. But in Louisville, everybody had a distillery. Every ad agency had one of the the distillers or one of the um, marketing companies as a client. So actually one of the very first people I met in, in the industry in Louisville was Max Shapira, the president of Heaven Hill and the agency I worked for had Heaven Hill as an account. And I didn't really directly work on the account because I did mostly the radio and TV advertising for the agency. But um but Max is a is a, a big uh, presence, and when he was in the office, uh, everybody knew it. It wasn't a very big office, so I, I've known Max, uh, you know, since since those days. Uh, so that was my first exposure to the industry, and then I went to work for another company in Louisville, where I worked with Brown Foreman and worked on a lot of their brands. Although in those days didn't do much on any of the bourbon brands because bourbon was pretty much dead. Um, in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, you know, we would talk about uh, about doing something for, a, a, say, early times or a, or Forrester, and then the answer we would get back would be, yeah, you know, we're just trying to keep those brands alive and keep them profitable, and we're not investing a lot in them because people are just not buying them. And there was a lot of feeling at that time that. Uh, uh, maybe bourbon was going to go the way of some other uh, beverages that had kind of died out and, and maybe just uh, held on with a small market. But, uh, you know, nobody really foresaw that uh, the, the business had been down for about 20 years, 15 years at that point, And people were beginning to come to the conclusion that it wasn't going to come back. So at any rate, that was my exposure to the industry. And then, um, actually, after I moved to Chicago, Kentucky was getting ready to celebrate its bicentennial of statehood. That would have been in 1970 or 1992. Uh, Kentucky became a state in, in uh, seven, uh, 1792. And the KET was giving out some money for people to do 
productions about Kentucky subjects, I put in a proposal to do a documentary about bourbon and uh, also got the Kentucky Distillers Association to chip in some money. And so I worked on that in 91, 92. And that was uh, first broadcast in June of 1992. And I think it's still being broadcast on, on KET um, every once in a while. And that was called Maiden Bottled in Kentucky. And that was really the first thing I did. Um, and, and after that, I just stayed interested in it. I, I found that um, almost everything that had been written about American whiskey was written sort of as a follow-on to something that was being written about scotch. Somebody would sit down and write a, a book or write an article or write a, a, a chapter in a book about whiskey, and they would primarily write about scotch. And then uh, at the end of the end of it, they would uh, throw in a little bit about bourbon. And almost everything you read about bourbon um, was sort of predicated on how it's different from scotch. Uh, but very few people, nobody really, was writing just about bourbon. So I got interested and started doing a little bit of that and wrote for um, wrote a few articles for a very, very early version of what was then called Malt Advocate and is now called Whiskey Advocate. And I also started publishing my own newsletter, The Bourbon Country Reader, which uh, I still publish and is still very kind of small, no, no advertising, uh, so on and so forth. And then, you know, a few years after that, did the first book and then did the uh, the book, uh, the the A. The Hirsch book, the, the Best Bourbon You'll Never Taste. Uh, that came along in 2012. And then Bourbon Strange came along in 2014. So that, that's pretty much, that's pretty much the, the story. Well, I think you uh, you kind of created your own little white whale hunt when you named you named a book the best bourbon you'll never taste. Yeah, I, it, 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 I mean, I, I'm I'm an old ad guy. I mean, that's my background is advertising, so I do think in terms of the provocative headline, the sort of thing that will uh, that's what a headline's supposed to do. It's supposed to make you want to uh, read further. And yeah, I, I, I've gotten a lot of notes from people who say they've tasted it or they went on a pursuit to find it and, and managed to obtain a bottle. Uh, part of my motivation in writing that book, um, which, which actually, interestingly enough, started out as a, uh, as a, uh, what I thought was going to just be a blog post. And uh, I'm like a lot of writers, I think that that's how I process information. If I've got some information that I want to kind of get straight in my own head, um, my process is to start writing about it. And that was really how that book started. And as I just kept going, it, it got longer and longer and certainly got too long to be a blog post. I thought, I think there may be a book in this. And it, it's a, and I had written about the subject for the newsletter and so forth in the past too. So I had sort of the beginnings of, of some material on it and um, but part of my motivation in actually writing and publishing the book was to, uh, I knew there were lots of people who had really cases of the stuff that they had bought and had it in their closet or their basement or whatever. And, you know, as you well know, selling alcohol is problematic legally, but people do it. And I knew that people would do it. And I kind of wanted to 
um, liberate <laughs> to the best that I could those bottles that were sitting in people's closets and basements and so forth and, and give people the idea that, hey, there really is some demand for this out there. If you can see your way clear to, you know, maybe bend some laws a little bit, um, you know, there's a market for it and you'll be doing the greater bourbon loving world a favor by letting people actually drink the stuff and, and not just, uh, you know, admiring the bottles on your shelf or, or wherever you have them. And I think that did prompt a lot of people to, and, and the, the internet where people are able to get information about all sorts of things, including bourbon and what's available, uh, I think did prompt a lot of people to feel like this was the time for them to cash in on that uh, on that acquisition, and so I think a lot of people did, and and you still you still hear about uh, people actually right around the time and I write about this in the book, right about the time I was writing the book, right about the time I was finishing it, I got a note from somebody who had actually found a bottle of the AA Church uh, on a shelf in I think on the south side of Louisville, if I remember correctly you know, Fern Valley or someplace like that, you know, Prospect, uh, uh, not Prospect, but um, you know, one of the southern suburbs. And, uh, you know, found it on the shelf at the original shelf price, which at that point had been like $80 a bottle at the time when people were paying over $1,000 a bottle for it, uh, which is about what people are paying for it now. Anyway, that that was sort of the story of, of, of that book and it's, it's been surprisingly successful as a book it, it's you know now that was now almost um you know, like in 2012 right so yeah it's, it's been a little and, bit and it's still selling which kind of surprised me it actually sold um very well over christmas and uh, i don't know if people who managed to get a hold of bottles were trying i i, I certainly know a lot of people who either before or after uh, buying a bottle also bought the book uh, because they wanted sort of to know the story of, of and there's really nowhere else where that story has been you know, fully fully worked out. I, a lot of people call me a historian. I don't call myself that. I think I'm a writer, a history writer, a popularizer, but most of the history I write is stuff that where other people did the real hard legwork. I'm just sort of writing it up as a story and making it available to people. Um, with the Hirsch, I actually did some some real historic sleuthing in terms of talking to original people who'd been involved with it, including Julian Van Winkle. And uh, uh, Mr. Hirsch himself is long since gone, but, you know, talked to some of the other people who'd uh, um, who'd been involved with it, uh, Henry Price, for example, uh, who owned the brand at one time. And um, so I was able to get, and, and, and Dick Stoltz, who was the last uh, master distiller at Michter's and uh, talked to, to him about it. He remembered it. And uh, so that, that was interesting for me. And then I think it also made the book interesting. It's not a real big book, but it's... Um, it's got a lot of information that you can't find anywhere else if you're interested in. And it's not just that product, but how that sort of phenomenon comes about. Absolutely. So I think give uh, give the listeners just a little bit more information about uh, Bourbon Straight and Bourbon Strange. Just kind of a, a quick, uh, you know, 
one minute overview of, of what each one kind of offers uh, in case they feel like going on a Amazon shopping spree. Yeah, um, they're both available on Amazon. All three of them are available on Amazon, as is the documentary made in Bottled in Kentucky. Uh, Bourbon Straight, again, has been sort of a phenomenon. I've been real happy with the bag. It still sells very well, and it uh, came out in 2004, so it's more than 10 years old, um, and still st- still sells very, very well. And it's kind of the... Um, I certainly don't discourage anybody from from buying it. It's, it's uh, uh, the bourbon industry uh, changes pretty slowly. So even though there certainly have been changes in that period of time, um, a lot of it's still very very valid. And, and certainly the things about how bourbon is made and so forth, none of that's changed. So it's it's pretty much a, an overview. It's not a lot. It, the the, the it, it includes about thirty five reviews of specific products and, and there are certainly tasting notes in there but tasting notes and that sort of thing is not really my thing um uh, i'm a, i think of myself as a good splainer that's what i've always uh, been in my life is is good at explaining things and uh, that's sort of what i based my straight career on too and that's that's what I try to do. Try to make a lot of this stuff clear, and try to cut through a, a lot of the marketing stuff. The the, the marketing uh, is like marketing for bourbons, like marketing for anything else. I mean, they're trying to sell a product. They're trying to make it look as as appealing as possible. I try to cut through some of the the stuff that uh, is maybe a little misleading and make it make it a little clearer to people. And the second book, uh, the second book in that sort of series, uh, Bourbon Strange, which just came out in 2014, um, is really just continuing that. I mean, I, I, um, I went even more into sort of storytelling in terms of specific stories about how things happened and, and, uh, and history to some extent, although it was a lot of the more recent history and certainly covering the history of the, the boom that perhaps started in 2000, 2001, and um, you know, really got underway a, a few years after that, uh, covers, covers a lot of that. And, and I like, I mean, I get a lot of positive feedback that says it's you know, very readable, very easy to, to, to read and enjoyable to read, and that's important to me. Um, I wasn't trying to create an a encyclopedia. I wasn't trying to create a, a reference book. I was trying to create something that you can sit down and read and enjoy. Well, good. So let's go ahead and just jump into uh, to today's news and some of the blog articles you've written because it seems like that's where you're publishing um, a lot of stuff. So the the biggest topic to kind of really talk about, you know, on episode 78 of the, the fourth edition of the Bourbon Community Roundtable that uh, we host on the podcast, we went in depth talking about the the price increase that we saw with bookers. And the, the whole nation went on a scare hunt. It was... Uh, it, Something that came out from Beam Centauri that said the new suggested retail price is going to be ninety nine ninety nine, and from there it it started a a huge uh, panic, I guess you'd say, in the bourbon world. Everybody was talking about it, and as of this week, uh, there was some real interesting news that came out that 
Beam is almost kind of reversing their decision. And I'm going to kind of go ahead and and let you kind of talk a little bit more about what the decision was, uh, where it's going to be, and kind of your thoughts about it. Because I liked how you you started off your blog post in the, and I guess you can say the way that you would capture this, uh, the first word just says dumb with a period. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's a conclusion to a, a whole process that went on. The, the way it all started, I don't know, a month or so ago, was there started to be some rumors, some of the, the websites, some of the Facebook pages and stuff, people were saying, oh, their rep said, you know, they, they heard from their Beam rep or the, the store uh, reported to them that their Beam rep had told them that this price was increase was coming. And my reply at the time was that doesn't sound right. It doesn't make sense to me. It seems like that would be a, a bad move on their part. Uh, a lot of people, I think, when then, then when it was confirmed, uh, maybe a week or so later, and, and, and I got a call from from my sources at Beam, and, and as did you know, Fred Minnick and Mark Gillespie and other people in the business, uh, saying, no, actually, it's true. That is our plan. And they gave, you know, gave us some details. And uh, in fact, a lot of people jumped on me, I think unfairly, saying that I had been you know, misleading them uh, with my earlier comments. But my earlier comments, I didn't have any information and didn't present it as though I had. I just said, to me, it doesn't seem like a very smart move. And Therefore, I, I doubt that it's true, and then it turned out to be true, and I was accused of lying and, you know, so forth. And, I mean, people get kind of crazy about this stuff. Um, and then just, what, two days ago, um, being called, as far as I know, only two people, and I was not one of them. They, they contacted Mark and they contacted Fred. Uh, I think maybe they anticipated what my reaction would be and didn't want to, you know, didn't want to. And, and again, the people who would be calling me uh, aren't the people who made the decision. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty confident. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, I think it was dumb. I don't know. That, I don't necessarily think that, that what they were trying to do, raising the price, trying to change the positioning a little bit, trying to push uh, bookers more into the, the unicorn, uh, unicorn status. I don't know that that was necessarily a bad idea. I think they just went about it very badly. And, uh, I also think that it's really a question if you can really fabricate something like that, whether or not you can just decide, oh, we're going to make this product, uh, so desirable that we can get a lot more money for it. Um, I don't know that you can necessarily just do that by declaration, by fiat. And in fact, what happened proved that that, that you couldn't. But, the, but what they basically did was they, they backpedaled, not entirely, but it was, um, they, they said they were going to increase the price more gradually and that the new, um, the new wholesale price would support a retail price more in the vicinity of you know sixty five seventy five dollars as opposed to a hundred dollars, but that's still about a uh, rather than a hundred percent increase over the current price. It's about a fifty percent increase. Plus, uh, Beam Beam has always been a very deal driven company. They um, 
you see bean products on sale a lot because they offer them to the wholesale trade on sale with great regularity. So you'll, you, you can almost always find a deal somewhere on your bean white label, uh, less frequently, but still fairly often on Knob Creek and some of their other brands. And so as everybody was commenting, bookers routinely around the country, depending on where you're talking about, uh, you might find it for as little as 35 bucks a bottle, even though the suggested retail is like 50. You frequently find it in the 40s. And, uh, and it's one of those products you almost never see retailers marking up. Uh, like they do with, say, the the Van Winkles or the or the, the Buffalo Trace Antique Collection, where retailers themselves will take uh, an increase over the suggested retail, and that's not legal in every state, but it's legal in many of them, and that's what they do. Uh, Booker's has never really even been able to do that. So I think what happened, uh, nobody again, nobody's given me any direct information, but what I believe happened was that they got serious pushback from the trade, people in the trade saying, you know, I know of some people who actually returned orders, um, you know, basically saying that this is going to kill the brand. Um, you know, we don't, we don't want this on our shelves at that price because nobody's going to pay it. And I think when they start getting that kind of feedback, that's the kind of thing that the company has to listen to. So I'm sure nobody wanted to reverse this. It's, it's obviously very embarrassing. I mean, there's no there's no uh, way to spin it where they don't have substantial egg on their faces. Um, it's an embarrassing thing to 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 do it, it, it you know you don't even see it that often from companies because it's so much to be avoided it does seem um you know maybe they were all distracted by their big uh, headquarters move they just moved their headquarters from uh, deerfield a suburb of chicago down into the merchandise mart which is right just outside the loop in uh, area of, of chicago called river north just north of the of the Chicago River. And um, so they moved back into the city where they had been until the 80s. And uh, maybe they were distracted by everybody. Uh, uh, you know, maybe they lost some papers along the way, but it seems like maybe they lost some brain cells because it was a really, a really bonehead move. I mean, the, 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 they didn't um, research it well enough or think it through well enough before they did the, the thing originally to anticipate this kind of a reaction, which I think they could have anticipated if they had their heads screwed on straight. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to give some credit to the the people that were making up a lot of the theories, right? Even in the last roundtable, Blake and Carrie uh, from Bourboner and Suburbia.com kind of said, like, this could be just a huge marketing scheme, or it could be something that uh, fourth quarter sales were down, and this is a way to really ramp them up towards the end of the year. And I think, I think they wish they were that smart. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it was funny that, you know, at the very end, Carrie said that we we have power as the consumer. And and I, I know you, you know, you kind of talked about people in the the industry, the the salespeople that said, you know, oh, they're they're getting the pushback. Um, whereas there was a, a good 
survey that came out from Breaking Bourbon that said over 89% of the respondents said that they would never buy bookers at a at that sort of suggested retail price. So I don't really know if they were actually listening to the consumers or if they were listening more to the um, to the people that are in the industry that were really uh, pushing them back. But I think uh, by and large, um, I don't think there was uh, more than a handful of people that were actually in support of it. Well, the nature of the industry is that, yeah, yeah they, they listen to consumers, but it's it's a very structured industry by law. Uh, the fact that the um, producers can only sell to licensed distributors and the retailers can only buy from licensed uh, distributors and the uh, consumer can only buy from licensed retailers. So, yes, consumer feedback is very important, but mostly um, it's the feedback that the consumer feedback that comes through the channel that comes, you know, people complaining to the retailer, the retailer complains to the wholesaler, the wholesaler complains to Beam Suntory, and that's really how. So I don't mean to suggest that the the consumer pushback was not important. Obviously, it was the the driver of the whole of the whole pushback. But the way Beam receives that pushback is through the trade channels, and so the the, the retailers are hearing from the consumers, and the wholesalers are hearing from the retailers, and that's how the information is transmitted. And and, and it's much more powerful that way. If you complain to your retailer about anything. Um, that's really much more powerful than complaining directly to Beam, uh, because that's that's what you know. The people who are actually making the orders that put the money in their pockets are uh, the wholesalers who are getting their orders from the, the retailers, and that that's really what what drives that decision making. And and I'm sure that the folks at Beam were loath to reverse this. I mean, it's terribly embarrassing. So it had to have been very, very strong feedback uh, that told them this this isn't going to work. And yeah, I mean, people do. Yeah, I, I ran a lot of comments. Well, I'll never buy Booker's again. I'll never buy a Beam product again. Um, uh, people say a lot of things. Right. Um, and and uh, the there's a much better way to measure something like that. And that's by how much is sold. And you said at the very beginning of this thing, there are constantly new people coming into this enthusiasm who don't know the history. And one of the people who commented on my blog said, you know, that they had talked to people and they said very few people know about all the tumult that uh, goes on in, in the chat groups and in the uh, the various groups of, of of hardcore enthusiasts. And I think that's true, but what that also neglects is that the reason the producers care about the hardcore enthusiasts is because they're powerful influencers. The guy in any group who is that group's expert, you know, on whiskey or vodka or whatever else it might be, uh, um, you know, sausages. I mean, whatever it might be, uh, the guy who's the expert in any group of friends uh, is listened to and and is is an influencer. And that's what they call it in the marketing business is influencers. And, and that's where I think a lot of this, a lot of this happens. So no, the average 
the average purpose person who goes into a, a store and buys a bottle of Jim Beam or Maker's Mark or even Booker's is not necessarily a person who knows all of this backstory and history and news and all the rest of it. But, you know, they heard something from a friend. They heard something from a buddy, um, uh, you know, a father or a son or whatever. And that may not even register in their in their mind why they don't like bookers anymore. Uh, and, and of course, the price itself um, speaks to people. Uh, a lot of uh, I think a lot of stores, because this is a normal thing to do in retail, saw the new pricing coming down in terms of what they would be paying and immediately marked up their shelf stock and. Uh, some people blew it out, uh, but I think other people immediately took the price increase and probably were surprised to see the product just sit there, that nobody was buying it at the higher price. And then that's why they uh, you know, stopped ordering more and so forth, uh, the kinds of messages that, that signal the mistake to the, to the producer. But there's there's still... They're still cutting the production. They're still not going to produce as much Booker's. So Booker's is going to be more scarce. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. I guess that's another question to kind of pose to you as well, because that's one of the things that came out. They said they're going from six batches a year down to four batches. And a lot of people are calling bullshit because it's not, it's like you have the stock. Like what's, what's the point of doing that? Well, they don't necessarily have the stock in that, um, you know, they were actually doing uh, six. And in some years, I think in the last year, they actually did seven batches and they were probably really pushing the the stock to its uh, to its limits. Uh, when we do the Booker's Roundtable uh, that I've been involved with, not every single time, but did a lot of them. Um, 
we get a real insight into how the product is produced. And it's, it's they, they select batches of barrels from uh, a couple of different warehouses, a couple of different warehouse locations, a couple of different ages. And everything, you know, their, their sort of limit is, is six years old. They won't go any younger than six years old. And it's usually a mix of six to eight-year-old whiskey. I think they found themselves pushing closer and closer to that six-year-old in order to, to find enough suitable barrels to, to push out uh, with the demand that they were getting. And so I think they did finally say, well, rather than continuing to increase uh, the products that get the, the whiskey that gets to that age and has the other characteristics that they look for in bookers, uh, we're going to put a limit on it. We're only going to, uh, you know, maybe because all of their products are growing and that, that same juice, that same liquid is in Jim Beam. It's in Jim Beam signature products. It's in, uh, the, uh, you know, and they have a 12 year old now in the, in the Jim Beam signature line, uh, not, you know, not a huge product at this point, but that supply has to come from somewhere. And it's the same, same stock as what becomes Booker's, uh, Knob Creek the same way. Knob Creek's a much bigger brand in terms of volume sales. And, uh, um, it's also been growing and, and it's hard, been harder and harder for them to support that brand to the point that they've taken the age statement off of it. And, and so there've been changes there as well. And, and I think uh, more modest price increases. Yeah. I think what they probably should have done if you know, in retrospect is go ahead with the, the limitation, the, the reduction in, in production and um, and then let the price seek its own level. If they found that they were uh, just you know selling it out instantly with each release, uh, you know, that the, the, there was that much demand uh, for it, then then they could have easily raised the price and and done it maybe twenty uh, percent you know, a quarter or something like that. And that's essentially what they've said now that they're going to do, although um, they're going to take a pretty hefty price increase right off the bat, um, and they may wind up suppressing demand in the short term. And that may not be a bad thing either, because they do want to, um, they want to have some scarcity, but they don't want to have too much scarcity. They certainly, the, the, the risk with any product um, that is that is scarce is that people will just get bored with trying to find it and look to other things. And uh, I, you know, how many people do you know who don't even bother to try to find a Van Winkle? Oh, know, lots of people. Yeah, yeah, it's just too much trouble. It's just too much money. Uh, once you've satisfied your curiosity and uh, and somebody has shared a drink with you, um, the pursuit is just not that. Uh, edifying. Uh, Buffalo Trace Antique Collection is kind of in the same vein. Uh, very hard to get. Uh, bottles never see the shelf. Uh, so it's along the same line. And Booker's, you know, I think they probably have mixed feelings. I don't think they want to get to a point where the stuff never appears on the shelf. Um, 
you know, the other thing I think that, that drove this was, or, or they should have been looking at was, I don't think Booker's does a lot of action on the secondary market. Secondary market's very hard to gauge. You can get a lot of opinions, but uh, very few are well-informed because it's also underground. But the Booker's has not been a big actor in the, in the secondary market. Uh, there have been a few of the special editions, the 25th anniversary, certainly the Booker's Rye um, was something that, that had a lot of action in the secondary market. But even there, you didn't see a lot of people selling it for much more than the, uh, than the original price where people might have bought a bottle for 300 bucks and sold it for 350 or 400, but not, for 700, 800, 900, the kind of markups that uh, that, that you get on the um, on the on the Van Winkles, and so I, I think they could have seen that. They could have looked at that and said, I don't know if Booker's is gonna, is ready to support um, the higher price. But anyway, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing. I think a lot of people look at it and, and do reach some kind of preposterous conclusions, but at the same time, I thought the original rumor was preposterous and it turned out not to be. So you can never be too sure about, uh, certainly not. 2016 has been a year where, was a year when a lot of unexpected things happened. A lot of things happened that people uh, didn't think would ever happen. For sure. And I think one of the, you know, what they always say there's, there's no such thing as bad publicity. And I think when you think about what they did is, even for a modest enthusiast, somebody is just a very novice into it and they read about it and they're, you know, they're not, they're not in the, you know, they don't have large collections or anything like that, but they read about that. And then the first thing they think is, well, I need to just go hurry up and get a bottle. And so it, it definitely put the word bookers uh, in the minds of a lot of those people that are just starting to get into the hobby as well. So it did have a, a another effect on those sorts of people at the same time. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. I, I, I think that the ad is, there's no simplicity. I think sometimes there is. Um, I don't think in the long run, I don't think anybody at Beam would say they wanted this to happen. And I think in the long run, it's not good for the brand. It's, it's, um, but people's memories are short. And as we've pointed out, um, new people coming in are not going to know this history. And they're going to go into a store and they're going to, you know, hear that Booker's is good and they're going to see it being at whatever price it is. And there are certainly other bourbons um, that are priced similarly. So, um, and, and certainly a hundred bucks isn't an obstacle for a lot of people, especially people who are coming over from Scotch, for example, and um, are used to paying that and much, much more for, for a bottle. And I think that, you know, again, th these people are in business. Uh, they're in business to make a profit and they're in business to increase that profit. And when you think about the whiskey business, you've got whiskey in barrels and it's aging and uh, you want to maximize that. You want every barrel you empty and put in a bottle. You want to get as... So I certainly don't blame them for trying. I think they just botch this <laughs> this attempt but yeah i think in the long run um it's certainly a, a good product and will uh, probably support a higher price down the road uh and like i say people do have short memories and they also don't have a whole lot of alternatives uh, every producer has 
made people mad at some point. Right. And if you uh, swear you're never going to patronize them again, your your uh, your list of uh, available uh, options is going to get smaller and smaller. And I think people who uh, decided they were going to abandon all of the the majors and start patronizing the uh, the micro distilleries. I don't think they've exactly uh, been edified with that uh, option either because uh, uh, stuff's not quite up to the standard of the the major producers yet. Most of it. I agree too. So yeah. I think we we've uh, we beat up on Beam enough. What do you think? Oh yeah. All right. So there's, there's always more. But I, I'm usually I'm usually beating up on Diageo, so beating beating up on Beam is kind of a nice change of pace for me. <laughs> it feels good, right? So so I guess let's let's kind of shift gears a little bit and kind of move over to Sazerac because you talked about a few different articles and we kind of talked a little bit before this and you've said that uh, that you know they've been doing a lot of things recently. They've been they've been doing a lot of buying. Uh, you could almost look at them as like the Apple in this market that they've got uh, cash reserves sitting around, and uh, and you might attribute that to the to the money in the or sorry the money from the successes they've had of the the brand of Fireball. So kind of talk about uh, what you really think about you know a Fireball being a success and kind of like what are their 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 purchases that have been happening lately and what that ultimately leans and means to uh, the industry in itself. Well, Sazerac, like a couple of other companies, Heaven Hill uh, being the other prime example, is a privately owned company. It's a family-owned company. And because it's privately owned, they don't have to disclose a lot of things that the the publicly uh, owned companies like, like Beam and Diageo uh, do have to disclose. So you have to read the tea leaves a lot with them to, to try to figure out what they're doing. And and. Uh, while Mark Brown, the president of, of, of Sazerac, is generally very open and very accessible, somebody you can um, get a comment from, talk to. Mark's also, and I always like this about him, um, if he doesn't want to tell you something, he says, Chuck, I'm not going to tell you that. Uh, he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't um, uh, you know, obfuscate, uh, try to you know, mislead you. He just says, I'm not going to tell you that. I don't have to tell you that. I'm not going to tell you that. And so a lot of this, a lot of times you have to, to guess at these things and, and they've never connected the dots, but it's, it's, and, and even fireball sales are not uh, publicly disclosed, but it's pretty obvious that fireball is a huge phenomenon. Um, the product itself, uh, you know, it's, Fine. I mean, it, it's a big industry. Uh, people can drink what they want to drink. It's not my job to tell people what they should drink. I think um, if people consider themselves whiskey enthusiasts and the main whiskey they drink is Fireball, uh, they might uh, want to do a little self-examination. But soul searching, if you will. Yeah. Again, that's it's, that's not my business. But from a a business standpoint. Fireball's obviously been very successful. It's very profitable because it's very inexpensive to make, and and they're selling you know tons of it. Um, so it's obviously been a, a a big success for them. And I remember when Heaven Hill struck gold with uh, Hypnotic a few years ago. Um, that funded a lot of of things, and they were. Uh, able to to put that money back into the company, and that's what 
Sazerac has clearly done. Um, you know, they don't have Wall Street. They don't have uh, the market. They don't have shareholders. Uh, the, the company is very closely held. Um, Mark Brown has told me on numerous occasions that he's really got a lot of autonomy to, to run the company as he sees fit because uh, basically he has to, you know, talk to Bill Goldring a couple times a year. That's the, 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 the family that owns it. And he says, you know, he talks to Bill a couple times a year and if Bill's happy uh, with the, the sales results of the company and the, the profitability of the company, then, then Mark can pretty much do what he wants. And so Mark has been in, you know, Sazerac has been investing uh, in a lot of things. They've, they've purchased you know, hundreds of acres of land around the distillery. Uh, they have been growing corn on some of it, which they're using, uh, in, you know, themselves uh, to to make bourbon. But they've also been the, the main reason they bought the land is because they're building warehouses on it, and they're going to over a ten-year period probably double uh, the the amount of warehouse capacity they have. And as as Mark explained, even if their volume sales don't increase, but of course they certainly are, the the market wants older and older whiskeys. And so they're, uh, you know, obviously if you're going to take something from being four years old to eight years old, it's got to age that much longer. And that means you've got to have more warehouse space to do that. You need twice as much warehouse space to make an eight-year-old whiskey as you do to make a four-year-old whiskey. So that's a lot of money they've been spending right there that it is not maybe as obvious because they've been doing it uh, sort of over, over a long term, but they, they, they had some warehouses right there by the distillery that had actually been sold um, 20 years ago, 30 years ago to the state of Kentucky to turn into office buildings. They have since bought those buildings back and converted them back into warehouses. They've, they've built a, a new state of the art, largely automated uh, warehouse, uh, finished goods warehouse, you know, where the, the cases of rice. And you have to understand, too, Sazerac does a huge uh, business in, in brands you've never heard of, um, of every shape and size, you know, vodkas and gins and, and liqueurs and, and, you know, imports, rums and so forth. Um, so they do, a, they have a, you know, big bottling facilities, big warehouse distribution facilities. Uh, they put just put a lot of money into the one in Frankfurt and a lot of money into the even bigger one in Owensboro. Then they bought um, these buildings in New Orleans that they're going to turn into a, 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 a home place, a Sazerac attraction. You know, the, the buildings are in a, a you know, area of downtown where, you know, that, you know they're on the tourist uh, on the tourist beat. And so they're going to create something actually it looks quite a bit like their visitor center at, at Buffalo Trace, what they're, they're planning for the visitor center in New Orleans. And, and you know, that, so that was a big, uh, that was a big purchase and uh, purchasing Southern Comfort um, and, and a smaller and a smaller uh, liqueur brand from Brown Foreman um, you know, Southern Comfort is a is a multi case brand. That's that's a brand that's going to certainly increase. Their multi million case brand, 
Uh, that's that's a, a product that's uh, you know a big product for them, a big acquisition. It was you know many 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 millions of dollars to purchase it. And then the most recent thing was buying the distillery in uh, Tennessee. That's a, a pretty new distillery, and it was built by the folks who own the Popcorn Sutton brand. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, they did not buy Popcorn Sutton, and they did not buy that brand or any of even the, the whiskey or, or distillate that's been produced by that distillery up to this point. They just bought the distillery, uh, but with it, they got uh, the, the, the staff, and the staff is staying, including the, the master distiller, John Lund, and uh, um, so that's, that's very significant, and he uh, was previously at George Dickel, so he certainly knows how to make Tennessee whiskey knows how to make a whiskey in the same style of uh, as Jack Daniels or George Dickel, and that's what they have announced that they intend to do. So they're they're just getting started there now. They didn't buy any of the existing uh, liquids, so they're going to be starting distillation now and putting things away. But uh, they'll probably have to build some warehouses because I don't think they have much. <coughs> in the way of warehouse capacity down there. And I know that uh, Sazerac doesn't have any excess warehouse capacity at any of its other facilities. So I'm sure they'll be building warehouses down there and they're gonna start putting away Tennessee whiskey, which in four or five or six years, uh, they'll be in a position to, to bring to the market and bring to the market under the name of Tennessee whiskey. And I don't think that I don't think the final shoe has dropped. I think uh, Sazerac, again, because of the money they're making off of Fireball and, and everything else is pretty successful too. Um, I think there are many, many more shoes to drop. So I think you're going to uh, see, see Sazerac. Again, we don't know how big they are. and We don't know how big they're going to become because they don't have to tell us. But... Um, I think they're becoming a, a much more significant player in the overall industry. They um, <coughs> have a couple of distilleries in Canada. Um, at least one of them was a distillery that had been shut down that they have reactivated to make Canadian whiskey. Um, I mean, I guess a good question for you is, I mean, what's the, what's the thoughts on just like the point of making more Tennessee whiskey? You know, I, I think, you know, Jack Daniels already has a, has a pretty good uh, hold in that market. Is that what they're trying to compete with? Or are they trying to Buffalo Trace? Jack, San, Jack Daniels sells you know, internationally and, and domestically a total of something like 14, 15 million cases a year. And it's still growing. Uh, George Dickel is much smaller. They sell uh, maybe 130, 140 thousand cases a year. Um, so they're they're you know one percent of Jack Daniels. So really, the Tennessee whiskey category is Jack Daniels. And I think what you're expressing is the same thing that I wonder. And at least it's certainly it's a gamble on Sazerac's part. And that's been the other thing about what they've been doing recently they haven't been afraid to take chances i think there is a, a real question mark about whether or not tennessee whiskey quote unquote uh, has legs beyond jack daniels is anyone looking for tennessee whiskey uh that isn't jack daniels 
and uh, uh, it remains to be seen. I think the, the change in Tennessee law a couple years ago, where Tennessee whiskey now has a legal definition, and uh, uh, I, I think is is helpful in that regard, so that when somebody makes and sells something called Tennessee whiskey, it's not just whiskey made in Tennessee. It's it's a certain style of whiskey, and it's very close to bourbon. But um, I think also as as American whiskey expands internationally. Um, yeah, you, you maybe go into the United States and it's, it's, it's a tough sell uh, where everybody knows Jack Daniels and everybody associates Jack Daniels with Tennessee whiskey. But imagine that you're in an emerging market where people don't really know these products that well. And sure, they've probably heard of Jack Daniels, but they don't really understand that Jack Daniels and Tennessee whiskey are synonymous. And they might be able to be convinced that, hey, there are other Tennessee whiskeys and, and that Tennessee whiskey is a category. I mean, I suspect that if, if Sazerac is successful and, and there will be other people, there already are um, other people trying to do similar things and that um, Dickel has been selling uh, some products, some, some liquid in bulk. They're not marketing these products. They're selling them to other people who are. And they're selling Tennessee bourbon. Uh, it's 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 made by a dickel by all the same processes that they use to make dickel, except for the charcoal filtering. So they're they're foregoing the charcoal filtering, calling it Tennessee bourbon. Um, so that's one of the things that's been going on. Um, so it's certainly conceivable that in the future, uh, assuming that American whiskey itself continues to be on the upturn, which also is a gamble, but um, all the indicators are pretty positive. Uh, Tennessee whiskey may become a category. I think that it's premature to say Tennessee whiskey is a category because I don't think there's really any evidence that you can sell Tennessee whiskey that doesn't say Jack Daniels on it. But that's what we'll see. That's what we'll find out. And that's what they're investing their money in. and. Uh, We'll see if they're right or not. It'll be an interesting thing to watch. Okay. And then you know, one of the interesting things about is everything is kind of long tail. It, it takes a while for these things to to roll out. Um, and Fireball probably is a very limited phenomenon. Uh, you know, does it have another year? Does it have another two years? I don't know. But you look at something like Fireball and you think, that's probably going to burn itself out, if you'll pardon the, <laughs> the pun. Um, kind of like how Goldschlager was really big, you know, uh, or, you know years ago or 10 years ago, yeah. And, and all the companies, every company has, has, has placed a gamble on some of this stuff. I mean, there was a time, what, five, six, seven years ago, when uh, the, the micros were all coming out with this white whiskey, and white whiskey seemed to be something that might actually have some legs. And, uh, and Bean came out with a white whiskey product. And, and Daniels came out with, a, with an unaged product. They didn't necessarily call it white whiskey. But, you know, they came out with, with clear products, unaged products. And uh, it, it sort of all fizzled out. Nobody's, you know, when was the last time you heard anybody say anything about white whiskey? Um, 
Yeah, and you can go back in time. I mean, uh, you know, people were were spending big money on. Uh, I mean, the producers were spending big money on wine coolers uh, back in the in the late eighties, and that was a, a thing that, that got very hot for a while and then fizzled out. You know, who, who buys wine coolers anymore? Um, so, never forget. Yeah, but so these things. And that's part of the industry. That's that's part of it. Some things do, some fads do become permanent products. I mean, Bailey's and the other cream liqueurs uh, maybe seemed like a fad at first, but uh, they have you know they've settled into being uh, very successful long term products. But most of these things don't. And I think fire, you know, hypnotic is an example of that. I mentioned them before. They were. That was a huge boon to Evan Hill when it first uh, when it first broke, and it had a you know, two or three year run, and then it, it's still sold. There are still people who drink it, but it's not the phenomenon that it was. And I think Fireball is going to go that same way. But you you make hay while the sun shines, and they've got this money to invest, and they're investing it. And I think for the most part, again, with my limited ability to judge these things. Uh, seem to be investing it wisely. Um, you know, they're not buying golf courses or, you know. <laughs> they're not diverging from their... their they're they're yeah. staying in the in their comfort zone and, and building up the, uh, you know, building up the business that they're already in. So, um, you know, the other thing that I think maybe, maybe, maybe it was the next thing you wanted to talk about, and I think it, it dovetails into what we were just talking about is the um, the, the, the fact of, of the, some of these micro distilleries now being acquired either in whole or in part by by the bigger companies. And that's uh, a trend I think that, that we're seeing now is that the, the, the bigger companies uh, you know, want a, want a piece of that action. Um, Sazerac in, in a sense, is is in that, but they're in it a little differently. They have have the the distillery in, in Virginia, the Smith Bowman uh, distillery that that uh, they've been now operating as a, a craft distillery, as a micro distillery. Um, the distillery in Tennessee, uh, even though it's, it's fairly good sized, it is an all pot still operation, so it is. Um, Certainly has many characteristics of a craft distillery. It's also in a, a tourism area in the sort of Gatlinburg uh, Pigeon Forge area, and uh, is uh, uh, was built to accommodate tourism, and, and that's a, a big part of the the craft distillery movement. Has been the, the, most of the distilleries are uh, very tourism oriented, but. You know, Bacardi buying uh, Angel's Envy, uh, and that, and that, that's instructive right there because I think if you look at that uh, and you look at uh, 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 the old Scout or the the, the, the Smooth Ambler acquisition, and not, not acquisition but investment, um, uh, Luxco buying into um, um, Limestone Branch, uh, those kinds of things. What the big companies seem to be buying is not so much production facilities as brands. All the all the companies that have had these deals that have done these deals have been companies that have 
one or more strong brands. And so High West, you know, had their, uh, you know, High West is a distillery uh, and, and recently enlarged their, just expanded their distillery. But what everybody knows about High West is, is the products they didn't distill, uh, like the Burai and the Midsummer Night's Dram and those things that are products that they acquired and, and, and did a good business with, successful business with. And that's what the, the majors are acquiring. So um, if, you, if you have a small distillery and you want to get acquired, think in terms of brand development. Don't think in terms necessarily of, of the facility, the production facility, the production aspects of the business, but think in terms of, of brands and brand marketing, creating brand equity. Uh, because that's what the that's what the the big guys are buying. Well, maybe me and you should just go buy some barrels from MGP and slap our own labels on it, and just become millionaires overnight. Yeah, well, that's that's an interesting. I mean, that's that's a good subject because a lot of people think it is that easy, and and clearly it's not. I, I get a lot of people who say you know they want to start their own distillery, but they're going to uh, buy some barrels from MGP. Uh, to get started. And what I counsel them is that, well, you know, first of all, there aren't a lot of people who've really successfully followed that path. And part of the reason is because, you know, there's this perception that you can do exactly what you said, buy buy some barrels, put some whiskey in bottles, slap some labels on it, make a million dollars. And it's not that, that easy. You find yourself in a business that's not the business you want to be in. You want to be in the business ostensibly of making a product, uh, but you're going to spend all your time selling this product that you didn't make uh, if you want it to be successful, if you even want it to to cover the expenses. Um, so I think, I think that's a, that's an issue with that that pattern. And I think if you actually look at, you know, sort of take a cold, hard look at the people who've said that um, when they started out, most of them are still buying bulk whiskey and selling that primarily. And if they're making anything on their own, um, they're not selling very much of it and uh, not really able to not able to finance that business as well as they thought they were going to because they're not making money hand over fist with the, the source product. They're maybe making a, a decent profit, but a decent profit's not usually going to be enough to to fund the very expensive process of building a distillery, making liquid, putting it in barrels, letting it sit for years. That's the thing that these micro distilleries, most of them, uh, have not found their way, their way clear to do is the long aging. And they've fooled around with these aging shortcuts and they've sort of learned the limitations of that. And uh, it's it's hard. It's very expensive to finance aging inventory. Uh, you might say, well, you only have to do it once, you know, because once you've filled that pipeline uh, and you get past that fifth year or whatever, then you, then you're uh, drawing whiskey out as much as you're putting whiskey in. But if you're successful, you have to keep putting more whiskey in every year, and and that costs that costs a lot. Uh, and the industry, really, for its whole history, has seen that, where um, 
sometimes success can be as dangerous, as hazardous as failure because you uh, uh, you need money to finance growth and, uh, and and there's just not enough of it in your own pockets or you find yourself putting all of your assets into the business and don't have anything to, to take home, don't have anything to diversify with. Um, it's tough. It's a tough business. And sometimes success can be just as challenging as failure. It's sort of like the old joke of, you know, how to make a small fortune in the whiskey business. Start with a large fortune. <laughs> there you go. Not only that, as I think here in the next few years, you're going to be seeing uh, probably a big crowded market, too. So that's you're going to you're going to be fighting for shelf space um, in, in the next few years at the same exact time. Yeah, a lot of people are saying, oh, the bubble's going to burst. I don't know that it is. I don't really see any indications that it's overbuilt. Um, you know, bourbon is still worldwide, uh, sells about 20% of what Scotch sells. And when you consider that, that Scotland is a very small country, what, 4 million people or something like that, I mean, it's not an independent country, but I mean, still Scotland is Scotland. And, um you know, virtually everything they make is export, but that's still what most of the world uh, thinks of as whiskey. I think there's a very good case to be made for bourbon slowly but surely um, uh, taking away some of Scotch's share. I think certainly the big Scotch producers are scared about that, nervous about that, trying to head it off. So I do think American whiskey, whether it's bourbon or it's Tennessee whiskey or it's rye whiskey, some other style, I think it's going to continue to see very strong growth for really as far as we can see into the future. I don't really expect uh, this to collapse in you know, a couple of years, but at the same time, I've been wrong before. So. Well, good deal. So I guess we're going to have to have you on again soon, and we're going to talk about just more more theories and all this other kind of good business stuff. So I want to say, Chuck, thank you again for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure to to finally get you on here. And we're this is definitely not going to be the last time either. Sure. Well, I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. So for anybody that does want to get in contact with you, how would they want to do or how should they do that? Uh, you, you know, I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm not too hard to find there. I luckily have a pretty unusual last name, C-O-W-D-E-R-Y. So pretty much Google Cowdery, and you're you're going to find me and one of the founders of the Mormon Church. I am not one of the founders of the Mormon Church, so uh, uh, don't follow those links. Follow the ones that, uh, that that go to Chuck Cowdery, and you'll you'll find me pretty easily. The blog is called the Chuck Cowdery Blog. That's the easiest way to uh, to enter into the world of Chuck Cowdery, um, and, and that's that's pretty easy to find. And make sure you support Bourbon Pursuit on Patreon if you like what you hear. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bourbon Pursuit. Also, follow us on all, all those social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Bourbon Pursuit. And if you have any more show suggestions or anybody you'd like to hear or talk and come on the show, make sure you send us an email. It's the duo, T-H-E-D-U-O at BourbonPursuit.com. And with that's it. We're going to wrap it up and we will see you all next week. Mm-hmm.